One of my favorite music groups is the band that goes by the name of Switchfoot. And back in 2019, they released this album called Native Tongue. And I don't know, it, it just seems like their music, their style, and especially their lyrics uh, resonate with me. And on this album called Native Tongue, they had their biggest hit, which was also called Native Tongue. And when we think of Native Tongue, we think about the language that we were raised speaking, the one that's most natural to us, the one that our parents taught us. But listen to how they define native tongue in this song. Sing to me, baby, in my native tongue. Sing the words of the wise and the young. Show me the place where your words come from. Loves the language. Loves your native tongue. Feel your heartbeat. Bang the drum. Open up your eyes and fill your lungs. The same word from where the stars are flung. Loves the language. Loves your native tongue. They're not here saying that your native tongue is Kartuli or English or Chinese or Spanish, but love is our native tongue. We were meant to speak words of love. And they have this little refrain in the song where it slows down and it says this, I want the world to sing in her native tongue, to sing it like we were young, back before the pendulum had swung to the shadows. I want the world to sing in her native tongue, Maybe we could sing, or learn to sing along, to find our way to use our lungs for love and not the shadows. I love these words because it stirs my imagination. It tells me that we can use our words, our tongues, our, our lungs to speak words of love, or we can use them for darker purposes, the shadows. In the book of James, we've been looking at his instructions, actually spread over several chapters, about the power of the tongue. You remember in chapter 1, James has written to his audience and says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He also says, If anyone thinks he is religious or, or spiritual, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. And last week, we saw how James taught us that the tongue is a fire and is set on fire by hell. That's James' way of saying that we don't use our tongues, our words, our lungs for love, but for the shadows. And as we worked our way through this book, we have seen how James is intensely interested in a real-life spirituality, not just kind of a nebulous, theoretical, what-we-believe kind of thing, but kind of a belief that works itself out in real life, in the real things that we do and say. And James has told us that this tongue of ours is, is untamable. Humans have tamed all kinds of animals, but no one is able to tame the tongue. It's impossible. But as Jesus has said on another occasion in another context, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so James is going to take another step in that same vein, and he's going to tell us that if we are ever hopeful to control our tongue, to use it for love and not the shadows then we're going to need a wisdom that is from above. So we're going to call our study today Wisdom for a Good Life. And we're just going to look over these verses that our friend just read for us. And let's jump in. Verse 13, chapter 3. James asked the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
A lot of people think that James has actually shifted gears here. He's been talking about the tongue, and now he's talking about a new topic, that is wisdom. But James was steeped in the Jewish scriptures, and especially the wisdom literature. And if you read books like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you know that so much of wisdom literature deals with the tongue, with our words. And so James is still in that. He's just taking another tact here. So he says, who is wise? Biblical wisdom is skill in the art of living well. And it's always connected to what the scriptures call the fear of God. That word fear in the scriptures is a very elastic term. In, in, in our English language, that word means something very specific, but it's much more elastic, kind of like our English word love. It can be used to describe all kinds of things. And in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord doesn't merely refer to trembling before him, but it has the wide range of meaning to, to awe and reverence and, and even worship. So James is asking, who among you is wise? And who among you has understanding? Understanding is like wisdom, but it's slightly different. Understanding indicates one's ability to navigate life morally, knowing the difference between good and evil and acting on it. Job summarized it well when he was talking with his friends, and he said that God has said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. So James is asking his first century audience. Now remember, they had been scattered because of persecution. He was the first pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem, and his congregation had been scattered because of persecution. And now they are trying to make ends meet to try to find a new way of living outside of their home. So just imagine the stress that would be involved in that. But he's asking these folks who've been scattered, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among us? How do we know? Oftentimes we think it's the person who's the most clever or maybe the person who's read the most theology or who can wax the most eloquent. But according to James, that's, that's not how you know who is wise and understanding among you. Listen to what he says. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. My translation is trying to follow kind of the woodenness of the Greek language here. But let's see if we can unpack it just a little bit. That word good conduct translated in my, my translation here is from an interesting Greek word that means a lifestyle or a way of life. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his way of life, by the lifestyle that he lives. It can be translated by his good or beautiful or noble life. That's why I chose in my title for this message, Wisdom for a Good Life. So he says, let him show it by his good life and let him show it by his works. Now, remember, James is intensely interested in the very practical way in which our life, that is, our beliefs, should work itself out in our life. Remember back in chapter 2, he says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. In other words, a Christian's trust in Jesus Christ becomes visible by the things they say, by the, by the words they use, by the things they do. There's always an element of that to it. So James says, let him show it by his good conduct, let him show it by his works, in the meekness of wisdom. That word meekness has certain connotations in our English, but it can be translated as meekness, like my translation does. It can also be translated as humility or gentleness. 
I mentioned my translation's a little bit wooden. The New International Version, I think, smooths it out and helps it flow much better. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. James is saying, those who have wisdom, those who have understanding, let them show it. Craig Blomberg in his commentary touches on this word humility, and he says, Thus the humility in question is that which grows out of divine wisdom. According to James, for people to be truly wise, they must exhibit humility. So if I can kind of graph this out for us, this is kind of how James is thinking here. Divine wisdom, that is wisdom from God, produces humility in our life. At least it ought to. And that humility exhibits a noble life that displays good works, good deeds. It's a beautiful life. And then James says in verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. James kind of shifts gears here, and he issues a warning and says, If anyone has these traits springing from their heart, he says, do not boast. Do not be false to the truth. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. There's, there's more that can be said, probably, in terms of what can spring forth from our hearts. James is actually setting them up to, to talk very directly to them in chapter 4. We're going to look at that next week. But he says, if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and do not be false to the truth. Now let me be clear. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's good to be productive. It's good to set goals to seek to accomplish them. But selfish ambition places us at the center of the universe. I remember Greg Mott, who used to be the leader of Breakaway, told a story one time of when he had finished teaching about 1,000 students this, this eager student came up to him afterwards and said, God told me that you need to step down from this ministry and I'm to assume the role of the leader in it next week. <laughs> it's usually not what you hear right after one of those things. But in that instance, there was a boasting and this, this, this college kid was not being true to the truth. So let me just ask us the question, where does bitter jealousy and selfish ambition lurk in your heart? Maybe you can think of a, a place where there's maybe some jealousy, but you wouldn't describe it as bitter jealousy. Well, let's just run with that. Is there jealousy in your heart? Is there a selfish ambition lurking there? Now, reading these New Testament letters, in, in many ways, is like listening to one part of a conversation. You know, that you're listening to a friend talk, and you're, you're trying to put together what they're saying on the telephone. That's, that's, in many ways, what reading the New Testament letters are like. You hear one part of the conversation, and... And as I was thinking about this, it might be the case. You remember back at the beginning of chapter 3, James said, Do not let many of you seek to become teachers because we who teach will be held to a stricter level of accountability. It might be the case that in that scattered church, there were some people who had jealous uh, thoughts and, and selfish ambition in their hearts. They, they saw the leaders of the church, but they wanted to jump in and, and be a part of that or maybe even take over. We're not really sure. We're listening to one part of the conversation here. But James tells us that this bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He says when you see certain traits displayed in life, 
and they're negative ones like this, he says that's an indication that a person is not living by wisdom that comes from above. Now, you remember in, in chapter 1, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask, from, uh, ask God who gives generously to all. And then he goes on and says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And he's going to speak about wisdom from above. And so James says when these negative traits show up in our lives, he said this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's an interesting set of words that he uses here, right? It's kind of an unholy trinity of terms. Let's break it down just a little bit. He says that this kind of wisdom is, is earthly. When our life is producing bad things, we're living according to an earthly wisdom. Another way of putting that might just be an earthbound wisdom, that is, living life without reference to God in that moment. He also uses this word unspiritual. It can be translated as natural, that which comes to us naturally, apart from the Spirit of God. I think this is what the Apostle Paul was speaking about when he wrote to the Corinthians these words. He said, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now, he's writing to Christians. He says, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not behaving in a human way? Are you not being merely human? That's Paul's way of saying that there's a, there's a way of being human that is not spiritual, doesn't reflect the life of God. I think that's exactly what James is getting at here. But also notice that James uses that word demonic. He wants us to be aware when we use our, our lungs and our words and our tongues for the shadows, not for love. There's actually spiritual forces and loyalties that are at work within us. You remember just in the passage we read before, James talked about how the tongue is set on fire by hell. Douglas Moon's commentary helps us to kind of sum up where we are so far. He says, In some, then, this false wisdom, which does not lead to good works and humility, is characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. In each of these ways, it is the direct antithesis of the wisdom that comes from above, heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, divine in origin. And I was just thinking about this, these two different ways of thinking about life, living life by my own wisdom, living life by a divine wisdom. I remembered that illustration by Vince Gilligan, who was the creator of Breaking Bad, and in an interview he said this. He said, I'm pretty much agnostic at this point in my life, but I find atheism just as hard to get my head around as I find fundamental Christianity. And this is the reason why he gives. Because if there is no such thing as cosmic justice, what is the point in being good? That's the one thing no one has ever explained to me. Why shouldn't I go rob a bank, especially if I'm smart enough to get away with it? What's stopping me? And an earthly, earthbound, unspiritual, demonic kind of wisdom that either says there is no God or lives like there is no God produces certain fruit, or if we're consistent, it should produce certain fruit. That's why the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. And James is subtly telling his friends that when jealousy and selfish ambition leak out of your life, death is at work. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
He says you can see it in a person's life. Just like you can see a Christian who's living by divine wisdom that produces a humility and good works in their life, so when a person's not living by that, you can see it in their life. There's disorder in every vile practice, or at least we can justify every vile practice. But then he says in verse 17, but the wisdom from above, the wisdom that God gives, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and insincere. Here, James points out the wisdom that you and I need to live by, and he describes it as a wisdom from above, a wisdom that comes down from the Father of lights, who gives good and perfect gifts. The way that fruit can be produced in our life, good fruit, the way that good words can be produced in our lives and not bad is by living according to the wisdom from above. So let me just list those attributes that he describes here as spiritual wisdom from God and just contrast that to what would be the opposite. So you can see on the left side of the screen there, spiritual wisdom from God gives peace. It's, I'm sorry, it's pure. It, it's peaceable. It's peace-loving, gentle, willing to submit to others, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good works, impartial and sincere. But you can see James here emphasizing this, and we can just easily imagine the contrary to it, which would be the natural wisdom he's talking about, that that so many of us live by nature. It's impure, combative, harsh, insists others submit to them, close to reason, full of judgment, empty of good works, prejudiced and hypocritical. So James is essentially highlighting for us two different ways we can live. We can live for love, or we can live for the shadows. We can live according to God's divine wisdom, or we can seek to live by our own earthbound, unspiritual, demonically inspired wisdom. Sam Albury in his commentary, I think, is very helpful getting the point across to us. He says, God's wisdom leads to harmony. Those possessed of it start to love peace more than selfish ambition. There's a consideration of others where there's once, uh, where once there was un- <laughs> Sorry, let me get this again. where once there was one upmanship and envy. That's a little bit challenging to say. The purity of God's wisdom shows itself relationally. This is where it is seen. So this is what James is getting at here. If any of you is wise and any of you has understanding, let him show it by his good life, by works done, and humility that comes from. God's divine wisdom. You will see it in a person's relationships. And then James says in verse 18, as he wraps up this section here, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Here James highlights that biblical word righteousness, which for many of us is just very vague and nebulous, but essentially means being in right relationship with other people being in right relationship to God. It's a relational term. To say that person is righteous doesn't necessarily imply that they are sinless. It just means they're living their life in such a way where they're easy to get along with. They're, They're in right relationships with people. There's not disorder and disharmony springing forth in all their relationships. So he talks about a harvest of righteousness. Not just a a smidgen here and a smidgen there, but a harvest What would it look like for you and I to have a harvest of righteousness? That is, a harvest of right relationships with others. Sam Albury once again said, we should think of this 
harvest of righteousness in two particular regards. First, in our own lives. As we live in light of the wisdom that God graciously gives his people, we become increasingly pleasing to him in the way we live. We exhibit more and more of it by leading a good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom, especially given the context and the kind of speech we use. But second, James must also have in mind an an impact beyond our lives. The language of harvest suggests such an attractive way of life that others are drawn to God through it, a behavior so compelling that becomes the clincher for some who are coming to trust in the gospel for the first time. It also suggests an attractive change, not just in our deeds, but our words. It's exactly what James is getting at there. This harvest of righteousness is not only simply blessing in our lives, but is on display. It's what Jesus meant when he said, let your light shine before others. If we can paraphrase Jesus there, let your words shine before others, that they may see them, they may hear them, and glorify your God. So James says, if you live by this divine wisdom, there's a harvest of righteousness, and it's sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who live by divine wisdom are not on a war path to destroy others. They don't have that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts. Rather, they love peace. They love purity. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Paul had this thought in mind when he said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful what is right to, uh, I'm sorry, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And it's not always easy or possible to live at peace with everyone, but James, or I'm sorry, Paul says here, as far as it depends on you, make that your aim. So, if we can put this up on a bit of a diagram here, there's two ways that we can live, and it produces two different results. There's two different wisdoms that you and I can live by that produce two different results. One is an earthbound wisdom that produces arrogance and a self-centered life that produces selfish ambition, and the results are disorder and what James called vile practices. But there's another way that we can live. This is what James is calling his friends to. It's what he's calling us to as well. We can live from wisdom, or live by wisdom from above that leads to humility and a noble life, producing good works and a harvest of righteousness. So I know James is, in one sense here, being very heady, but let's see if we can apply this very specifically to our lives. First of all, let's seek true spiritual wisdom from God. We can't just hear this and go, oh, that's nice. We need to seek this kind of wisdom. Remember what James said in chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. The promise is made that if you ask God for wisdom for your life, to navigate difficult situations, difficult conversations, difficult people, a difficult life, God will give it to you. But it comes by asking him for it. It comes by us rejecting our instincts on how we ought to live with our own earthbound wisdom and seeking God's way to live. Proverbs says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So here's the question. Do you ever seek wisdom from above in order to live your life rightly? Be honest now. 
How often in your prayers do you tell God you need wisdom? You need his wisdom. You need his perspective on being able to live a good life in the midst of so much craziness going on in our world. Do you ask every once in a while? Do you ask weekly? Do you ask daily? I'm in one sense asking you, do you feel your need to live by the wisdom from above? Or do you believe that you have, by nature, what you need to make it? Sam Alberry once again said, we cannot gain true wisdom without turning to God for it. If the source of this wisdom is God, we need to be those who pray. The fact is, we need to have God's perspective on our lives. We need him to humble our hearts. We need him to tame our tongues. It is why humility and wisdom go together in this passage. To truly know yourself is to know yourself in need of God's grace. It looks like this. God, I'm facing this difficult situation and I don't know what to do. I mean, I know what I want to do, but I don't know that that's the right thing to do. Would you give me your wisdom so that I know how to, to behave, how to conduct myself in this situation? Or it might look like, Lord, I really want to tell off this person. <laughs> it's just coming out of me. <laughs> Guard my mouth, Lord. Give me wisdom on how I should speak in this situation. Help me not to set this world on fire in the wrong way. So let us seek this true spiritual wisdom from above. Here's a second point of application. Let's remember that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. Do you remember when Jesus was being tempted by the evil one? One of the temptations was to turn these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus was fasting over a 40-day period, and the evil one comes to him in a moment where he must have been weak and feeling it and said, Use your power to turn these stones into bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm not going to take things into my own hands here. I'm going to live by the wisdom that God gives. And remember what the Apostle John said in the opening of his gospel. <laughs> he says that Jesus is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is for us the wisdom from God. He is the word incarnate. And what did it look like when this word of God came and lived among us? What were the things he said? Well, they were dripping with divine wisdom. Things that were very countercultural to the wisdom of this world. Things like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Jesus spoke these incredible words of wisdom, words from above, words from God. 
Because it doesn't look like the peacemakers win in this world, does it? It doesn't look like for many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith and have suffered greatly for it and have even had to lay their life on the line, it doesn't look like they win in life. But Jesus says, actually, there's more to this story. They are blessed. They are blessed. And the ultimate example of divine wisdom is for display on us in the cross, isn't it? Where Jesus willingly laid down his life to make atonement for the sins of the world. To be able to make atonement and have our sins condemned in his flesh so that we could receive life and forgiveness and salvation from him. For many people, to look at a first century Jewish man dying on a cross when he had so much to live for, and, and to say that that's somehow the epicenter of meaning in this world, that sounds crazy. The Apostle Paul recognized as much. In 1 Corinthians he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Here Paul says, you want to see the wisdom of God ultimately displayed in clearest and starkest terms? It's found in Jesus dying on the cross with words like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing coming from his lips. That doesn't seem like a natural wisdom, does it? It doesn't seem like a wisdom that we would naturally utter if that was us on the cross. I know I would be calling down God's curses upon them. But Jesus lived by a different kind of wisdom. So our first point of application was, let's seek true spiritual wisdom from God. I mean, let's actually do that. Second was, let's remember that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. And here's the third and final point of application. Let's determine to live a good life with deeds done in humility that comes from divine wisdom. This is what James is after in our lives. For you to live a good life that is seen by the humility that you have, that comes from the wisdom that God is imparting to you, that, that flourishes through good deeds. Jesus was described like this by the Apostle Peter. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. I love that description of Jesus. You see it as you read the Gospels. He went about doing good. What if that described us? Those of us who follow Jesus. What if people could look at our life and say, there's just something different about that person's life. I, I see them going about doing good. Everywhere else I look, I see arrogant, self-centered people. But in you, I see a humble person whose life is just beautiful. Peter also said, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We're meant to believe in Jesus and to see his beautiful life. And that act of trust and faith is meant to work itself into our life 
so that we go about doing good and live a beautiful life like Jesus does as well. So there you go. James sets before us two ways for us to live. One is the earthbound, natural, and what he referred to as the demonic inspired way of living by our own wisdom. It produces arrogance, it produces a self-centered life, selfish ambition, and at least a disorder and vile practices. But James wants much better for you. He wants you to live by wisdom from above so that it can produce humility in your life. It creates a noble life that flourishes in good works and produces a harvest of righteousness. What if we could use our tongues, our words, our lungs for love and not the shadows? James says it's possible with Christ and the wisdom that comes from above. So Mercy Hill Church, may you choose to live by divine wisdom, showing it by your good life with deeds done in the humility that comes from God.